0: Good morning, Christ Chapel. It's good to see you. I don't know if it's too late for me to say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. If you're joining us from the South Campus, the West Campus, or Converge, or online, wherever you're at, I wish I could see your faces, honestly, but I'm very glad you're with us. My name is Ryan McCarthy. I'm the Soul Care Associate Pastor. I've been on staff forever here, but uh, I get to uh, help with the Counseling, with I teach some classes, and also one of my favorites is I get to oversee the uh, marriage ministry called Reengage. So that's the many some of the many hats that I wear. And um, what I get to do today is open up the Word with you, and I'm excited about that. Speaking of which, if you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter four. We're going to be in verses 15 and 16, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. But um, tell you something unimportant, but I want to tell you something about myself. Whenever I'm running errands out west of here near the uh, Joint Reserve Base where Lockheed Martin is located, if I'm ever out that direction and an F-35 jet takes off and I happen to be underneath it, if my eardrums don't explode and if my car windows aren't shattered by the noise, I am, I'm like fist pumped, you know, I wanna pull over and start saluting. I love it. I can't get enough of that sound, of that power. And... um, you know, a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to the Lockheed Martin factory where they build those jets. If you've never seen it, really cool, the factory is literally a mile long, and you go in on one side of it, and you, you, they just have raw materials, just metals and stuff, and then as you move along, they start putting these, this together, and I wouldn't understand what I'm seeing if it weren't for the, the diagrams of which part of the jet they're building, And by the time you get to the end of that factory, the other end, you have a fully assembled F-35 or F-18, whatever they're building. It is awesome. It's like a a complex labyrinth of engineering genius. I don't understand it, but I love it. I really would like to go back. I'm sure I'd bring my kids. My oldest son would love it. But, But I can't go back. You see, the first time I went there, I had access because my wife worked there. She worked there for a number of years. Um, If I tried to go back today, I I wouldn't be able to get within the hundreds of yards of the place. I'm not asking for an invitation, but I'll take one. Um, But there are a number of places that if you don't have access, you're not getting in, right? Whether it's box seats at an arena, backstage at a concert, the the VIP lounge at an an airport. Our children's ministry, that, that area... Would qualify. Have you ever tried to walk through there? Our volunteers will stop you, right? Unless you have the proper access, you need your kid that you're dropping off or the proper tags to pick them up. But if you think, well, hey, I'll just sneak through, our volunteers will take you out. (laughs) There are a number of places where if you don't have access, you're not getting in. Or there there are people that unless you have arrangements or, or access, you're not, you can't simply drop in and see them. That being said, do you have access to God? Do you have access to him? Now, you might have been around church long enough that you know the correct answer. I understand that. Let me aim that question more at your gut. Do you feel like you have access to God? Do you feel like you can just... Cozy up to him, if you will, you know, and spend time with him, and you feel a sense of connection. Would you describe your relationship with God as intimate? Uh, When I'm meeting with people, maybe like counseling or just an appointment, to get a feel for where somebody's at, after it's established this person is a Christian, I might ask a question like, how close do you feel to God right now, like in in general? And to help out sometimes, I'll say, on a scale of one to ten, Ten being, I could not imagine feeling closer to him. One being, I'm a Christian, but practically speaking, I don't feel his presence at all. I'll ask, where where are you at? And I think an average response I get is a four, maybe a five. And I can relate, honestly. I often don't feel near to him, just naturally speaking. And, And it's funny because coming out of a season like Christmas, where that's exactly what Christmas is all about, is that God came near. He put on flesh and became approachable to us, a baby. I mean, what's more approachable than a baby, right? He, he's God with us. And with that being emphasized and being reminded, I bet you many of us secretly kind of feel like God might be a little distant, um, especially at the end of a year like this, right? We might feel more anxious, anxious, uh, maybe apathetic in our walks with God, or maybe we're, we're grieving so much from a loss or just from how this year has been. We don't necessarily feel the closeness that we want to feel. What, what number would you give yourself on that scale of one to 10? Are, are you satisfied with that number? And if you wanna draw closer to God, do you feel like you know how to do that? Let me ask this question again. Do you have access to God? I might say, this might be surprising, but I want to suggest that without a high priest, you do not have access to a holy God. Without a high priest, you do not have access to a holy God. There's a number of places I can go to make this point or defend it. And I don't want you to turn here. I'm just going to summarize this. What comes to my mind is 2 Chronicles 26. This illustrates the point clearly that without a high priest we don't have access to a holy God. Second Chronicles 26 is about King Uzziah. And he he reigned, he was the king of Judah. He reigned for 52 years. Imagine that. I mean, as an American, I can't imagine someone reigning for more than eight years. <clears throat> 52 years. And he reigned that long because he was a good king. According to the author of, of, of Chronicles, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. King Uzziah was a good king, but the second half of that chapter records this story in which the king became proud, and in his arrogance, he decided to go into the temple of the Lord, which is like the hot spot of God's presence. He went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense. That was a no-no for two reasons. Only priests and Levites were allowed in the temple, and only priests were allowed to burn incense. But the king was like, Well, I'm the king. I'm gonna go do this. And the chief priest Azariah, not you know, Azariah and eighty other priests went in to oppose him. And this made the king angry. It's like, I'm the king, nobody opposes me. And verse 19 says, when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And when they recognized this, they got him out of there pronto. Because leprosy, it was the ultimate disease. It was incurable, it always started as a spot, but it would inevitably spread, and it would eventually kill you as you fell apart, literally. To make matters worse, lepers had to be, live apart from community. Anytime anybody was nearby, they had to yell unclean. Probably same with COVID, right? If, if they also couldn't be in the presence of God. They, they had to be, they were unfit for worship in, in that state. Well, Verse 21 of Second Chronicles, it says, And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. See, even as a successful king with an amazing track record of honoring God, Uzziah did not have unhindered access to a holy God without a high priest. And you might be thinking, sure, that was then, but that's not the case now, Right? Not so fast. I think King Uzziah's story uh, captures the same attitudes and blind spots that that get us. Um, For example, some of us struggle with with Uzziah's pride. We might approach God in a way that we sort of waltz into his presence as if it's no big deal. We we, we fail to keep in mind that we're, we're seeking the presence of a holy God there should be some reverence, some fear and trembling. Others of us struggle maybe with his leprosy. I hope not literally, but the, 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 the recognition, I'm, I'm unfit for God's presence. I'm aware of my own shortcomings and sins, and I feel unclean. I feel like damaged goods we might oscillate between those two extremes as well or have some sort of combination. But the point is, those problems are real and they were meant to be addressed and answered by the high priest. They point to our need for a high priest and the good news is, in Christ, we have a high priest. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16 make it, tell us beautifully. It says, "'For we do not have a high priest "'who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses.'" but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why Jesus came. It's why on earth he came. He came to become our high priest. To appreciate this, I need to clarify what is a high priest. A high priest is someone who stood, who represented Israel before God. To say it more poignantly, he stood in the cosmic gap between a sinful people and a holy God. And he did it by offering the various sacrifices that were prescribed in the law. There were sacrifices to atone for sin, to take away guilt, to cleanse. There were a lot of sacrifices, but he needed needed two major qualifications in order to be the high priest, and these are broad strokes here, but he needed to be like his people and he needed to be unlike his people. He needed to be like his people in that the high priest identified with the Israelites. He was one of them. He came from the 12 tribes of Israel, Idru- one of the 12 tribes. He was a Levite. He came from Israel. He wasn't flown in from some other place to perform a special task and then to go back. No, he was one of the people. He had the same nature, the same struggles, the same weaknesses as his brothers and sisters. He was like his people, but he was unlike his people. He was holy and set apart. He had a a special function. Leviticus 21 lays out all of these guidelines they had to live by. Um, He was chosen by God. He didn't appoint himself. He didn't volunteer for the role. He wasn't voted in by the people. God chose who the high priest was gonna be. And then also... He, had, he, he was to be wholly dedicated in service to the Lord. Wholly dedicated. Leviticus 8, there's not gonna be a test over all these verses, but Leviticus 8 talks about the anointing process for the priests. And what they would do is they'd take a ram, the, called the ram of ordination. They'd slaughter the lamb, spill, a, a splash of the blood on the altar of the Lord. And then they would take some of that blood and put it on the high priest's right earlobe on his right thumb and on his big right toe, right big toe, or his big right toe. Okay, so that was supposed to symbolize that he was wholly dedicated to hearing the word of God, to doing the work of God, and to walking carefully in God's ways, all in service to him. He was to be wholly devoted. But here's the problem. He was a sinner. He wasn't truly holy. He fell short, he felt short of his qualifications of being unlike his people until this was a temporary and imperfect system implemented by God pointing to when Jesus came. And in Jesus, we have a high priest who meets all of the qualifications. Jesus meets all of the qualifications of a high priest and more. I mean, think about it. Jesus is like us, fully man. In fact, he became one of us Hebrews 2.17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And we've been celebrating the fact that Jesus, he became a baby, right? Think about that. Like, he took no shortcuts growing up. I don't, I suspect he never fast forwarded any portions of his life, like, if I were Jesus, I would want to fast forward my preteen years, skip middle school, maybe. He never, he never took any shortcuts. He experiences, he experienced the same um, feelings like sadness and discouragement, and uh, I'm sure he, he got exhausted. He never, um, he lived with desires that I'm sure were never fulfilled. He didn't have like Superman's nerves of steel. He never used his divinity as a way of kind of making his life easier. I mean, think about it. Jesus was able to walk on water, right? But then in the Gospels, he says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He didn't have a bed. So what would it, what would it cost anybody for him to just to simply float one inch over the ground when he's trying to sleep in the wilderness, like out in the wilderness, that would have been free. And yet, no, that would have been the perfect sleep number bed. Instead, though, he just laid on the ground like anyone else because he became one of us. He, had, he experienced the kind of life that we experience. So he, be, he became one of us, and in that, as a result, he's able to sympathize with us. He sympathizes with us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. You know, when you go through something difficult, when you go through something hard, you receive the most comfort and the most kinship from someone who's gone through what you're going through, right? It's common sense. You lose a loved one. You lose a spouse. It's hard to receive comfort from someone who hasn't been there. But if someone who's lost a spouse as well hears you and they have a special ability to sympathize, right? Right? I remember when my wife was eight months pregnant and we had a five-year-old and a one-year-old boy at home as well. It just, it was a difficult season for all of us, but especially for her. I remember go, I would go to work and, and where I work, people treat me like a human being. They're nice to me, generally speaking. I would come home some days and just say, so how was your day, honey? And, and I would get an answer that was, um, loaded with emotion, you know, and, and just Brandy would be exhausted. And maybe I, it would, her answer would get too intense for me. And on, on a few occasions, I remember saying something like, okay, yeah, okay, I understand. I understand. And she would say, no, you don't. You don't understand. I might as well have said, I know how you feel, honey. No, you don't. You've never been pregnant, and you've only watched the kids for 15 minutes before you lose your hair. That's why I look like I do. I, had, I was limited and I am limited in my ability to truly sympathize. Jesus is not limited, he gets us. And the word sympathy means literally, it means to suffer with. So I'm, I'm gonna go a step farther because it's not like Jesus just gets us. Oh, I've been there, I remember. I believe he suffers with us. When you suffer, he suffers. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a sermon in which he says, He says, Jesus is the ultimate man whose head is in heaven and whose feet are planted on earth. We're the body, the the church is the body of Christ and he's the head of the church. And he goes on to say, no pain inflicts the feet that isn't registered in the head. When, When you hurt, he hurts. He sympathizes with us, he gets us, he understands us. And also, he was tempted like us. Part of the way he understands us, he, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. Jesus knows the pressure firsthand to give in. He's intimately acquainted with the justifications and the rationalizations that assault us when it would be really easy just to compromise. He's like us. Side note here, but this is how we pick our re-engage leaders. We don't ask people with like the perfect marriages to come down from their holy mountain to show us common folk how to do marriage. We ask leaders who struggle, who have struggled and still struggle honestly. They know where to find hope, but I know this, that they have the same arguments pulling up to church that we do, right? We're sinners, and, and it's, it's comforting to, to receive um, ministry from someone who gets you, who struggles like you. But the thing is, that alone isn't good news, to have someone that's like you. If you were drowning, you don't want someone to get you. You don't need someone drowning with you. You need someone whose foot is on the shore, who's able to help you. And that's why it's such good news that Jesus is unlike us. He is gloriously unlike us. I mean... Raise your hand if you were born under a star, if you had angels announce your birth. How many of you have lived a perfect life, perfectly devoted and loved to the Father and loving others? None of us. Jesus was and is holy, perfect obedience, and in that, he never yielded to temptation. In every respect, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He never gave in. Jesus knows temptation, I would say, better than anybody here. He knows temptation better than us. You see, temptation is only as strong as it is until you give in to it. I resist up to a point, but eventually I give in, right? Up to that point, I know the weight of temptation, and then my knowledge stops. Jesus resisted perfectly to the point of shedding his blood, according to Hebrews 12, he, 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 he never gave in, so he knows the full weight of temptation. I mean, listen, I could tell you that my car is heavy. I could say, hey, come out with me, let me show you. And I'm wearing a sweater, so you can't tell, but underneath, I am ripped, okay? If I, if I decided, I'm going to show you how heavy my car is, and I start to lift it, you might see the car come up about half an inch, the tires are still touching the ground, you know, but it'll lift up a little bit. And I could, with all my effort, say, this thing is heavy, But I would not know how heavy that car was unless I got underneath it and lifted it over my head. Then I know the full weight of the car. In the same way, Jesus knows the full weight of temptation, but he never yielded to it. And that's good news. He never sinned. Every priest before Jesus sinned. And what they did is, that meant that the priests needed the same help and the same rescue he was offering his people. He He had to offer a sacrifice first to atone for his own sin, and then he would offer a sacrifice for the people. That's what a high priest did before Jesus. But then when Jesus came as our sinless high priest, he didn't have to bring a sacrifice. He was our sacrifice. Jesus didn't need to sacrifice. He was our sacrifice. Hebrews 2.17 says, he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became a propitiation for our sin. Don't let that big word throw you off. It means his sacrifice took away God's wrath against our sin by taking our condemnation condemnation on himself. Romans 8:1. there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So many verses here. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of this means because of our high priest, we are forgiven, we're cleansed, and we are given complete access to God. It's powerful. Do you know what the high priest did for, the, for lepers in ancient times, in the Old Testament, what the high priest would do for lepers. This is in Leviticus 14. All right. He would leave the camp to go search for lepers. Verse three, he would literally, he would leave the camp to go search for the lepers and when he'd find him, he would bring him in at risk to getting leprosy himself. He would bring him, him, him in and present a sacrifice, atone for the lepers' sins. He would cleanse him and It goes on to say he would take some of the blood of that sacrifice and put it on the leper's right earlobe, on his right thumb, and on his big right toe, his right big toe. He would, do do you see, does that sound familiar? The high priest would take the leper, and in a sense, he would make him a priest. He would make him acceptable for God's presence and even acceptable for service. Do you see the gift in this for us, for you and me today? Listen, I'm a spiritual leper. I can, I can feel it. I can, I'm aware, when I try to approach God, I'm aware of my unfitness for his presence. I don't seek him as I should. I don't love him the way I should. I have sins that that regularly come up that I still struggle with that I think, when am I going to kick that? Or when am I going to uh, start loving God and pursuing him the way I should? And I feel like a leper. Or there's other days where I don't feel it and I just come waltzing into his presence like it's no big deal. I feel my need most of the time, though, and it causes me to make me be standoffish at times. But God saw me in my condition and sent Jesus to come after me living outside the camp, to bring me in, to atone for my sin, to cleanse me, to make me fit for his presence so I can be in His in service to him all by grace, all because I have a high priest who is like me and yet who is unlike me. And I suspect I'm not the only person who feels like a leper at times. What do we do with this? The application is really obvious. Therefore, we draw near. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews does. Verse 16, he says, Let us then, therefore, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Practically speaking, what, what do you think he means by draw near? I, it's nothing fancy. I'm talking about spending time with God in prayer in his word, worshiping, spending time with God. We, we draw near because we can. I think, though, this verse gives us three really beautiful tips on how to maximize that time with God. We are to draw near first by bringing our, our, our trust to him. Bring your trust to him. He says, let us then with confidence draw near. Come to God with confidence. Confidence in what? Trust in what? I think think a lot of us want to trust somehow in what we're doing when we approach God. We want to trust in maybe our recent track record. Have I been good lately, uh, avoiding certain sins or pursuing God? Do I have warm feelings for God? Has it been a while since my last willful sin? Those are trusting in feelings, trusting in time, trusting in your works. We don't draw near because of us. We draw near because of him. We have access to a holy God because of Jesus, our high priest. And I think drawing near with confidence in Jesus pleases God. So we draw near by bringing our trust to him. Secondly, we draw near by bringing our sins to him. It says, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace. Don't let that repetition, you know, uh, fall flat. It's grace and mercy. We're approaching a God who gives grace and mercy. Simple definition here, but grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. We're approaching a God who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but gives us the free gift of his love, undeserved favor. We're not approaching the throne of judgment, but the throne of grace. I I heard it said that no one is so far gone that they are beyond the reach of grace, and no one is so good that they're beyond the need of grace. No matter where we, we stand, we need to approach him for grace and mercy, and that involves bringing our sins to him. Because we're aware, we should be aware of things that we do that, that offend a holy God, but we, he already sees it, he already knows it, and he's already forgiven it in Christ. So we, we confess our sins to him as we draw near. And then last, we bring our need to him. Draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to the throne of the one who's in charge of everything. God is able to help us and he delights to help people who are undeserving. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives graciously without finding fault. He doesn't say, well, do you deserve wisdom? No, he gives it. He, He delights to help those who come to him and ask. We're approaching the one who's in charge and he gives grace. So do you need help? Go to him and ask, ask for it. I can't think of a more appropriate way to, to close the time out here by approaching the throne of grace with you. So I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer. I'm gonna ask you to, to bow your heads and I'm gonna be silent. I'm gonna prompt you, but just give you some silence for you to talk from your heart to God's heart. So would you pray with me? Let's just start by thanking God, that because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone, you're allowed to draw near. Start by thinking him that you can draw near through Jesus. Maybe you've never drawn near to God through Jesus. If you've never trusted in him, You don't have to do anything elaborate. You can just tell him, God, I trust in your son. I trust in Jesus. I draw near through him. Thank you for receiving me. You know, in Christ, there's now no condemnation for us but there may be some things that are polluting our conscience and stand in the way of us experiencing intimacy with him. We're talking to a a God who doesn't simply forgive us of our sins. He's already judged them by having his son pay our penalty. So do you have anything to confess, things that you've done or failed to do, things that you've loved more than God? Just take a few moments to acknowledge them to the one who's already forgiven them. Is there anything else on your mind? Did you walk in here with burdens, things that you're worried about? Bring him to your father. He's able to help and he's willing to help. Lift up your needs to him. Do you or someone you love, uh, do you have someone who you, who you love who needs help? Let's also lift them up. Father, I thank you for making a way for proud and sinful people like us to, to be able to confidently draw near to you. Would you teach us To draw near to you as a way of life more and more. Would you teach us to enjoy your presence? Lord, we do love you, and we pray to you in the matchless name of our great High Priest Jesus. Amen.